Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Without superstition, Providence seems to have prepared the way and to have pointed out the instruments of its will. Our children will reproach us if we neglect our duty, and humanity will escape many scourges if we act with wisdom and decision. That will be the moment for us to settle upon immutable foundations, the extensive system of the American station. Who can hinder us? This letter from U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King to Alexander Hamilton in January 1799 seems to highlight the beginnings of a feeling of confidence in American abilities that would build in the streams of public consciousness towards what would later be dubbed Manifest Destiny and American Exceptionalism. Indeed, in the aftermath of the XYZ affair, it seemed like both the public and the politicians of the time were filled with a gumption that had been in shorter supply previously. This was a nation ready to go. But before we get too far down this line of thinking, I'd like to take a moment to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to my husband, Alex, for providing the intro quote for this episode. As has often been the case, I've turned him to pitch in and take a moment in the spotlight for the good of the podcast. And as always, he stepped up without question. As Mr. Adams knew, having one's dearest friend involved was key to one's endeavors in life, and I am very grateful to have my dearest friend by my side. Even before the XYZ affair, it seemed like Americans were starting to build themselves up towards breaking through some of the geographic and geopolitical confines that they had found themselves restrained in since the Declaration of Independence. Now, as this podcast goes on, we'll increasingly talk about the public mood on various issues as that will become ever more a prominent part of developments within future presidencies. But I think it's important to note that my reference to Americans or the public right now is by and large in reference to the more well-to-do white men who constituted the voting constituency of the time. While we do have some evidence in primary records of the political opinions of individuals who were not wealthy white men, by and large, it is from that population that we draw from for evidence of the public mood of the time. Though I will try to introduce other voices when I can, the vast majority of primary records from the time dealing with the subjects that we'll be addressing come from that population. But as voting rights expand and literacy in the U.S. increases, the composition of the public and the sources from which historians can draw to get a sense of the public mood will become ever more diverse. In addition to having an eye on affairs to the East and Europe, this public was looking West and thinking of the possibilities. Secretary of War James McHenry in particular was focused on what was occurring on the nation's western frontier and had sent out numerous spies along with missives to military and Indian agents stationed in the area in order to gather information. As discussed in previous episodes, with 2.5 being the latest, the French, British, and Spanish all had intrigues going on in the lands that, at least according to Euro-American treaties, were supposed to be American west of the Appalachians. 
Though Spain had its own agent placed as commander-in-chief of the U.S. forces, General James Wilkinson, they were finding their position weakened since the signing of the Treaty of San Lorenzo, also known as Pinckney's Treaty, and since the death of Wilkinson's predecessor, General Anthony Wayne. In May 1797, Wilkinson sent a formal notification to the Spanish authorities in New Orleans that, in accordance with the treaty, U.S. forces were being prepared to take possession of Spanish forts on the east bank of the Mississippi River. It seems that the Spanish thought the enforcement of Pinckney's Treaty might be as lax as the enforcement of the British concessions in the Treaty of Paris had been. And besides, wasn't Wilkinson an agent of the Spanish crown? Surely he wouldn't move too swiftly on this. Nothing doing, though. Wilkinson seemed genuinely interested in going on the straight and narrow and serving the U.S. in his present capacity. Through the course of 1797, Wilkinson went on a tour of the military fortifications in the West and issued recommendations for some of the forts in the Northwest Territory that were no longer needed following the end of the conflict dubbed the Northwest Indian War so that those resources could be redirected to take over the Spanish forts. Meanwhile, McHenry in Philadelphia wrote to Wilkinson in mid-March 1797, after Adams took office, that his priorities were, quote, saving money, maintaining discipline, and keeping peace with the Indians. As the year went on, though, those prospects grew ever dimmer. Beyond receiving word of the Blount conspiracy, McHenry's agents also reported about the Spanish taking steps to fortify some of their posts on the east side of the Mississippi, and that they were actively encouraging Spanish settlement in the area, as well as courting support from Native Americans in the southwest. In addition, rumors were reaching McHenry's desk that the Spanish government was considering giving Louisiana and the Floridas to France, and that the British were thinking of sending a force down from Canada to seize control of New Orleans and Lower Louisiana. None of these prospects boded well for the U.S., and McHenry developed proposals on how to strengthen the American position in the Southwest. Perhaps if they agreed that the Spanish would destroy their fortifications rather than hand them over to the U.S., they would be more willing to vacate the area. Also, it might be worthwhile to provide some guarantees for Spanish settlers in the area to stay on their current lands if they were able to petition Congress for the right. Also, McHenry proposed that more gifts should be given to Native Americans in the area, with the caveat that they would have to agree to not intrigue with foreign powers. While all this would take time, those efforts, along with Wilkinson's mobilization of forces to set out from the Northwest Territory into the unorganized Southwest, would hopefully do the trick for securing the area. With the aid of Western settlers in Natchez, who launched a revolt against the Spanish governor and effectively ended Spanish control in that key district, the Spanish would ultimately evacuate the forts by April 1798, around the time that Congress authorized the establishment of the Mississippi Territory out of the lands that had been ceded by Spain in Pinckney's Treaty. Slowly but surely, it seemed that the Southwest was being brought into the American fold. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Meanwhile, someone else with designs against the Spanish government made the crossing from France to Britain in January 1798. Dear friends, it is time for us to make the acquaintance of Francisco de Miranda. Anyone who has studied Latin American history has likely heard of Francisco de Miranda. 
Miranda was originally from what we now know of as Venezuela, specifically the city of Caracas. Miranda's father had been a prominent merchant and, despite some disputes with the elites of the colony, had been able to secure an education for his son in Madrid, as well as a commission for Miranda as a captain in the Spanish army. Miranda would spend years fighting in conflicts in North Africa, then in the U.S. at the tail end of the Revolutionary War, then would serve as a spy on British activities in the Caribbean. However, Miranda would then be questioned about a collaboration with a British smuggler and escape to the hills outside Havana, Cuba. He would then go on a tour that began by first going up the eastern seaboard of the U.S., then through Europe from west to east making contacts, gathering information, and working to put together a plan to launch a revolution and secure independence for Venezuela. It was with this in mind that Miranda paid a call on U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King in London on January 30, 1798. It is believed that Miranda had been directed to King by the government of British Prime Minister William Pitt, which, as early as the Nootka Sound controversy in the beginning of the Washington presidency, discussed in episode 1.10 of this podcast, had been interested in ousting the Spanish from Latin America and the Gulf of Mexico. While the official American position was one of neutrality, King gathered information in the course of numerous interviews and relayed it back to contacts both in and out of government in the U.S. He wrote back to Pickering in late February that he felt Britain would reach out to the U.S. about a scheme to join forces to support independence movements in South America and recommended that the administration agree to take part in those efforts, quote, under the influence of that wise and comprehensive policy, which, looking forward to the destinies of the new world, shall in the beginning, by great and generous deeds, lay deep and firm the foundations of lasting concord between its rising empires. To Hamilton, King would write a few months later that, quote, the destiny of the new world, and I have a full and firm persuasion that it will be both happy and glorious, is in our hands. We have a right, and it is our duty to deliberate and to act not as secondaries, but as principles. Getting the administration to join forces with Britain, though, would prove problematic, as the British had stepped up operations in the Caribbean to the detriment of American shipping. The British had taken Spanish-controlled Trinidad in February 1797 and had launched an unsuccessful expedition against Puerto Rico in April. In one of the darker hours of British history, it seems that the Pitt Ministry drew upon the strength of the Navy in an attempt to escalate conflicts in another front of the war in order to draw the attention of France and its allies away from the British Isles. Meanwhile, as the new year dawned, the British government, in response to the French orders of January 18th, discussed last episode, issued similar orders governing the cargoes of neutral vessels on the 25th. While not necessarily attributable as an escalation from the American point of view when just looking at the new order, the news of it when it reached the U.S. was on the heels of news from the Caribbean that there had been an escalation of attacks around British-occupied Mont Saint-Nicolas in Saint-Domingue. It seems that the Vice Admiralty Court set up there was rather notorious for handing out, quote, unusually severe sentences and would be a thorn in the side of Anglo-American relations throughout the course of 1798. Before we shift back to the reaction to XYZ, let's get a quick update on the situation in Saint-Domingue as it would increasingly come into the conversation during the, quote-unquote, mitigated hostilities that would come to be known as the Quasi-War. When we last left Saint-Domingue, Toussaint Louverture was starting to consider who would be best to govern the colony. 
As early as 1796, the governor of neighboring Guadeloupe had already written to the directory government that Saint-Domingue was, quote, lost for all the powers of Europe and warning that, quote, the greatest folly our government can commit is to try and reestablish control over it. Toussaint's answer for who was best able to govern Saint-Domingue was quickly becoming himself. And in August 1797, he removed one of the last major rivals to his power by forcing French commissioner Leger Felicité Santonax to depart from the island. During the course of the fall of 1797 and winter leading into 1798, Louverture and his fellow general in the southern part of Saint-Domingue, André Rigaud, would work to drive the British out of some of the lands that they occupied, with Rigaud driving the British out of the major port of Jeremy. With these setbacks, the British commander in charge in Saint-Domingue signed an agreement with Toussaint, which provided for the evacuation of all British forces from the island. This departure would be completed by October and eliminate another rival, but Toussaint was still faced with the prospect of what to do about the French, who had sent another special agent to take control of the situation, the Comte de Duville, who arrived in Le Cap in April. Edouville, quickly determining that his situation in the colony was weak, deferred to Toussaint in the negotiations with the British, but did work to undermine his position in other ways, including fueling a rivalry between Toussaint and Rigaud. In this, he would prove successful, but in most everything else, instead of weakening Louverture, Edouville just drove him to seek support from France's enemies, namely Great Britain and the United States. We'll get more into this in a later episode, but just know that the United States has a role to play in the Haitian Revolution, and the Revolution, in turn, has a role to play in American history. For now, though, let's turn back to Philadelphia, where April 1798 finds Congress and the public learning of the XYZ affair, and Adams, Marshall, Pinckney, and the Federalists being lauded for their conduct. A few weeks after the scandal was made public, Adams decided to do something that he hadn't done yet since assuming office. He went to a play, and as reported by Henrietta Liston, quote, nothing could equal the noise and uproar at Adams' arrival. The president's march was played and called for over and over again. It was sung and danced to. Some poor fellow in the gallery calling for Sa a French revolutionary marching song, was threatened to be thrown over. One wonders whether this was an attempt by Adams to garner public support or if he just decided that he needed to get away from work and enjoy a play. But whatever his motivation, one can only imagine the satisfaction he had at finally getting cheers and calls of support for him, not Washington. Perhaps his work would pay off and he could finally get out from under Washington's shadow. Federalists in Philadelphia took to wearing black cockades, similar to those that had been worn by Washington's troops during the American Revolution, as an answer to the tricolor cockades that Democratic Republicans had worn in support of the French Revolution. Pro-administration militias began to organize around the city. In Congress Hall, too, Adams found increased support. On April 8th, Samuel Sewell of Massachusetts brought before the House the defense measures that Adams had been requesting, strengthening the Navy, improved coastal and harbor defenses, Army merchantmen, and establishing a provisional army. As Secretary of State Pickering reported to former President Washington a few days later, Democratic-Republican opposition evaporated upon the public revelation of the XYZ affair and, quote, the French devotees are rapidly quitting the worship of their idol. By the end of the month, 
legislation to create the Department of the Navy had been approved by Congress, and this would soon be followed by a bill for a provisional army of 10,000. The end of 1798 would prove, at least in my estimation, to be the high point for the administration. May, meanwhile, would prove correct the old axiom that absolute power corrupts absolutely. At this point, the Federalists were without a viable opposition, and they knew it. Robert Troop, a high Federalist from New York, wrote to Rufus King in June that, quote, Gallatin continues to clog the heels of government, but he has not sufficient strength to stop its motion. Without him, the party would be completely scattered. Meanwhile, Benjamin Franklin Bosch's home was attacked by mobs. Despite the attacks, Bosch kept up his criticism of the anti-French sentiment in the Adams administration, which infuriated First Lady Abigail Adams, who wrote to her sister that, quote, Bosch has the malice and falsehood of Satan, and that, quote, in any other country, Bosch and all his papers would have been seized. Though, as we've noted in past episodes, Bosch had supported Adams from time to time and certainly preferred him to Washington, he was far from being a fervent Adams supporter. Bosch kept his feet firmly rooted in Democratic-Republican ideals, and thus, in the eyes of many Federalists, was a public menace. Around the same time, Federalists in Congress started attacking their Democratic-Republican colleagues as being quote-unquote degraded and in league with quote, the furious hordes which threaten this country with subjugation. The opposition, however, would not be the only targets of the Federalist ire. As the month went on, both houses were debating versions of an alien control bill, and Federalists came out with a host of bills ostensibly for national security, but that can easily be seen as aimed at weakening the Democratic-Republicans politically. The first, passed on June 18th, was the Naturalization Act, which lengthened the period to become a naturalized U.S. citizen with full voting rights from five years to 14 years. We've discussed previously that there was an influx of French émigrés due to the revolution in the metropole of France and the revolution in Saint-Domingue. This bill was an attempt to make sure that these folks wouldn't get the right to vote and thus give more support at the polls to the pro-French Democratic Republicans. Federalists weren't stopping there, though. On June 25th, the Alien Act was passed to give the president authorization to deport any foreign-born residents that he felt were a threat to national security without any explanation and without a hearing. On July 6th, the Alien Enemies Act was passed, which gave the president the authority to label any residents who were citizens of a country with which the U.S. was at war as quote-unquote enemy aliens. Again, both of these were measures aimed at the French immigrants who the Federalists felt were aiding and abetting the Democratic-Republican opposition. Finally, though, the Federalists in Congress went right at the heart of the Democratic-Republicans by passing the Sedition Act on July 14th. Now, I don't know if it was intentionally symbolic that this was passed on what we now know of as Bastille Day, the anniversary of the storming of the Bastille, but it's certainly an interesting coincidence at the very least. The Sedition Act made it illegal to either publish or speak, quote, any false, scandalous, or malicious writings against the U.S. government or Congress with intent to defame or to bring them into contempt or disrepute. The penalty for violating the Sedition Act? Up to $2,000 in fines and two years in prison. Republicans would fight all of these measures. Representative Edward Livingston of New York would warn that the alien acts could result in someone being deported for, quote, a careless word, perhaps misrepresented, or never spoken, 
Representative Albert Gallatin would attack the Sedition Act as a flagrant attempt by the Federalists, quote, to perpetuate their authority and asserted that, quote, the proper weapon to combat error is truth. Other Democratic Republicans would add their voices to the opposition, but in the end, all of the acts would be passed and signed into law by Adams. We'll talk more about the ramifications of what would come to be known as the Alien and Sedition Acts in future episodes, but I'd like to take a moment here to talk about what his signature of these bills would mean to Adams' legacy. We have no record except for that signature of what Adams thought of these bills at the time, and as far as we know, he did not take an active role in their passage. He would later in life try to pin the blame on Hamilton for their passage, and even later biographers of Adams would try to explain it away as an instance that the, quote, government took steps to protect itself. But the truth is that these acts and Adams' approbation of them stand as the largest black eye on his legacy and an aberration from his otherwise rather consistent record as president of balanced measures. Get your grains of salt ready, but in my estimation, this was a blatant partisan attack, and it is hard to conceive that Adams would not have picked up on that. Did he feel that he had to placate the arch-federalist with this measure, or did he get some satisfaction from finally having the authority to take out some of his critics who he felt were being unfair in their attacks on him? There is also the possibility that this had nothing to do with Adams' approval or disapproval at all, but more with the criteria by which Adams made his decision on whether to sign a bill or veto it. As I've noted in numerous instances in the Washington and Adams series, the government under the Constitution was still new, and the roles of the constitutional offices as we now know them were still being developed. Though we call the veto power a constitutional power, in fact, the word veto is not in the Constitution. Rather, Article 1 just states that congressional bills have to be presented to the president once passed by both houses for the president's approval. I quote Article 1, Section 7, Clause 2. Every bill which shall have passed the House of Representatives and the Senate shall, before it become a law, be presented to the president of the United States. If he approves, he shall sign it. But if not, he shall return it, with his objections to that house in which it shall have originated. The Constitution gives no guidance on why a president should return a bill. In his eight years in office, George Washington had vetoed only two bills. For his two vetoes, Washington returned one bill on constitutional grounds and the other on the recommendation of Secretary of War James McHenry. Spoiler alert, but Adams would be the first president to decide not to veto a congressional bill. What criteria did Adams use in determining to sign a bill? As far as I've been able to find, we have no way of knowing. Perhaps Adams simply felt that these bills were all constitutional and had no objections expressed from the cabinet. His opinion on whether or not they should be made into law might not have played into the decision at all, or he may have completely approved of all of them. All we know is that his signature was affixed to these bills from Congress and made into law and that the Alien and Sedition Acts have been looked at in history since as a classic example of doomed-to-failure government overreach. This is not to say, though, that at the same time as these acts were being passed, that other, more beneficial legislation was not being worked through Congress. Since the legislation to create the first six naval frigates had been passed in 1794, it had been the War Department that had directed their construction and launching. However, with three ships already launched and more on the way, it was deemed prudent to break the Navy off from the War Department. 
Their management of the construction of the frigates had already been criticized, and there was already the precedent of the separate naval department that had been in place during the Revolution. Thus, on April 30th, 1798, the Navy Department was established, and on June 18th, the first Secretary of the Navy, Benjamin Stoddard, assumed office. Stoddard came to the office with some military experience, having served as a captain of a Pennsylvania regiment for two years before serving as Secretary to the Board of War during the Revolution. After the war, he became a merchant in Georgetown, Maryland, and invested in property in the new federal city at the request of George Washington himself in order to cede the land to the federal government. As often happened at this point in presidential history, Adams had originally offered the position as head of the Navy Department to fellow Bay Stater George Cabot, but Cabot refused the post. When Stoddard was then offered the office by Adams, he wrote to Francis Lowndes that, quote, I hate office, have no desire for fancied or real importance, and wish to spend my life in retirement and ease without bustle of any kind. Yet it seems cowardly at such a time as this to refuse an important and highly responsible position. Stoddard, despite an initial refusal, would ultimately assume the post after Adams put the pressure on, and, a few days after taking office, wrote to Massachusetts merchant Stephen Higginson that, quote, I am but new to my office and shall stand in need of all the aid I can obtain from enlightened and patriotic men like yourself in all parts of the Union. Despite Stoddard's reluctance and doubt, he would quickly prove to be an invaluable addition to Adams's cabinet. During this time, Adams sought to tie up a couple of other loose ends before Congress adjourned. On June 25th, as instructed by Adams, Secretary of State Pickering wrote to Elbridge Gerry admonishing him for remaining in Paris after his fellow commissioners had departed and ordered him to return at once. On July 7th, Adams signed a bill abrogating all current U.S. treaties with France. Then on July 11th, he signed an act reestablishing the U.S. Marine Corps as a permanent military service for the first time since their disbanding following the Revolutionary War. However, his most notable act during this time occurred on July 2nd. While the House was passing a bill for a land tax, the first federal direct tax on U.S. citizens to pay for strengthening the nation's military resources, Adams sent to Congress his nomination of George Washington as Commander-in-Chief of the new Provisional Army. That's right. He turned to the man whose shadow he had been laboring to get out from under for a year and change to lead the army. Why Washington, you ask, dear listener? Well, let's look at a couple of items before we address that. Washington had been out of government for a year and a quarter before he picked up his pen on June 17th to write to his successor. He had heard that Adams was thinking of visiting the federal district to inspect construction of the new capital, and thus he invited him to stay at Mount Vernon during his visit. He also praised Adams' addresses to date and assured him that there were not, quote, any who more sincerely wished that your administration of the government may be easy, happy, and honorable to yourself and prosperous for the country than I. Adams then replied to his predecessor on the 22nd, informing him that while he appreciated the offer, he was not at the time able to get away to visit the Capitol under construction, that whole pesky looming war and all. Then he went on to state that, quote, My administration will not certainly be easy to myself. It will be happy, however, if it is honorable. The prosperity of it to the country will depend upon heaven and very little on anything in my power. I have no qualifications for the martial part of it, which is like to be the most essential. Here, it seems, we have the doubt that Adams felt around the inauguration creeping back in. Was he truly up to the task? 
though we only have the evidence of letters to inform us of it, whereas he had in 1797 seemed to restrict his doubt to letters with Abigail. Here, he was admitting to his predecessor that he felt possibly inadequate to the task. He didn't stop there, though. He continued with, quote, If the Constitution and your convenience would admit of my changing places with you, or of my taking my old station as your lieutenant civil, I should have no doubts of the ultimate prosperity and glory of the country. Let's put this into context. The nation's on the possible brink of war and ramping up for the possibility. People in and out of the administration are fearful of enemies from without and within. Meanwhile, the president is writing to his predecessor, asking for them to switch places because he feels inadequate to the task. As students of this period of history know, modesty was considered a virtue, and in public proclamations, politicians often protested their unworthiness and inadequacy for offices that they were appointed or elected to. However, in light of his private letters to Abigail, and the fact that he had no reason to believe that Washington would publish this letter, this seems to be something more, and may help to shed some light on why Adams agreed to the Alien and Sedition Acts. Let's postulate here. The pressure's on, and the future's very uncertain. Adams knows he has to maintain domestic peace in order to present a unified front to whatever external threat the nation may be facing. How does one maintain domestic peace in the late 18th century? As Abigail said, in any other country, Bosch's press would have been seized. Meanwhile, when it comes to military matters, Adams is not the expert. Sure, he knows some about arming and equipping a navy, but being commander-in-chief of forces in the field? Who is the most capable commander in the U.S. and the one who most anyone would follow into battle? That's right, the guy cooling his heels at Mount Vernon. In the letter of June 22nd, some 11 days before nominating Washington as commander-in-chief, Adams writes to him that, quote, If the French come here, we must learn to march with a quick step and to attack, for in that way only they are said to be vulnerable. I must tap you sometimes for advice. We must have your name if you in any case will permit us to use it. There will be more efficacy in it than in many an army. The signing of the Alien Sedition Acts, the appointment of Washington as Commander-in-Chief, these were all, in my humble opinion, acts of desperation by a president who felt overwhelmed by circumstances beyond his control. They were also acts that he would live to regret, as we'll learn more about in our next episode, which I'd like to call Checkmate Hamilton. Until then, thanks again to Alex for providing the intro quote for this episode. If you'd like to see the sources used for this episode or catch up on past episodes, visit the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.com. If you have any questions or comments, send them my way via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I'm also available on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram at Presidency's Podcast. Again, all one word. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. 
Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.